This is the UK House Builder and Developer from Good to Great series with Gerard Ball, Managing Director of Human Capital Group, helping you build your UK house building teams and businesses fast. We find the top 15% of talent in the market by harnessing the power of big data, 24-7, 365 digital automation platforms and inbound strategies. Leveraged by 20 years successful mid to senior level recruitment experience. In 2017, alongside a small team of co-directors, Ian Pritchett launched Oxfordshire-based Sassy Property, a pioneering firm that has already delivered the UK's most sustainable zero carbon and zero net energy houses, smashing government carbon targets 30 years ahead of time. In this episode, Pritchett discusses his house-building journey, including 20 years in historic building restoration, how it led to working at the forefront of sustainability in the industry, the challenges faced by small developers, and the urgency for the UK to step up to the environmental mark. Nice to meet you, Ian, and welcome to the Good to Great series. Now, I'm going to jump straight into the interview. You've seriously been involved in eco-building now and low emission construction for the last 15 years, which, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, makes you a real industry expert. What led you down that type of career path into kind of the eco-build, low emission side of construction? Well, it it was a bit of an accident, really, I suppose. I studied physics at university back in the 1980s, and I have to say... I wasn't really into the environment or ecological things at, at all, and I thought climate change was all a, a bit of a nonsense. But I found myself working on building sites during the university holidays, and I thought building was far more fun than physics. So I actually became a builder rather than a physicist back right. in the 1980s. <laughs> and I sort of found that most of the buildings I was working on were pre 1900. And I had to learn a lot about traditional building techniques, things like lime mortar and handmade bricks and lime and horsehair plaster. So fortunately, I had an inquiring mind and I I started to learn these things and started building a business that was repairing historic buildings. Right, okay. I suppose after we'd been doing that for 15 years, we were approached by somebody else who was running a business that was repairing windmills and watermills, and he was getting close to retirement and, and asked us to take over his business. Right, okay. He did at the end of 1999, and I found myself having to learn about windmills and watermills fairly rapidly. And one of the key things was looking at the weather, because both windmill and watermill work is very dependent on the weather. So from about 2000 onwards, I was looking at the weather very carefully. and. I couldn't fail to notice that we were seeing more extreme weather events than we'd seen before. And all of a sudden, I, you know, I have a scientific background and mm. can't deny the facts. And, and actually, I started to see firsthand that our climate was changing. Not that we weren't seeing things that we hadn't seen before, but we were seeing more of the extreme events happening more frequently. And I started to realise that climate change was real. So that was probably around 2000, 2001. And I also realised that a lot of the things that we did in the historic building world and the types of materials we were using Mm. were inherently sustainable. And I thought, well, why don't we still do the sort of things that we used to do? 
when we built buildings in the past, we used local materials that didn't travel very far, generally right. unprocessed, low-energy materials and things. So from about 2002 onwards, I started trying to get lime mortar used in new buildings in favour of cement mortar. Right, okay. And uh, we were pretty fortunate. We won the contract for the rebuilding of St Pancras Station and supplied all the mortar for the, the new Channel Tunnel Rail Link terminal that they built. At oh, really? Just as a layman who's not so technical, what's, what's the benefit of lime mortar over cement-based mortar? You've got three real benefits. It's strong enough to do the job, but enough that when the building comes to the end of its life, you can actually get the bricks apart. So... Its main benefit is that um, you can recycle bricks and you can reuse them again and again. Something like a brick has a a life of a couple of thousand years, whereas a a building might only have a a life in commercial building terms, might be as short as 30 years. So the recyclability of bricks is pretty important, and lime mortar will facilitate that. Generally, cement mortars are so strong, they stick the bricks together so hard that you'll never get them apart again. So that's the key one. It is. Mm-hmm. It has a, a lower carbon footprint than cement mortar. And in structural terms, it's flexible enough to allow buildings to be built without the need for expansion joints. So it's got some useful structural properties as well. But the main one in environmental terms is, is recycling of, of the bricks at right. the end of their life. So that was where I started to get involved in environmental buildings, promoting lime mortar as an alternative to cement. And then what started off as quite a difficult thing to persuade people to use lime mortar started to get much easier because we were fortunate that we had architects using it and then specifying it again and again. And we even had brickwork contractors realizing that it gave them a competitive edge if they could suggest to their clients that it could be done in lime mortar. And we then started looking at other things that we could do with lime that gave us an environmental advantage. And I came across some work that was being done by an architect in Suffolk who was mixing lime and hemp together and building buildings out of lime and hemp. And uh, I was very impressed with what he was doing and thought, wouldn't it be great if we could scale that up? And that's what I've been trying to do, really, for the last 15 years. And uh, it wasn't nearly as easy as the the scale of the the lime mortar, I have to say. But um, we're still working on it. And, you know, just talking about that 15 years, um, you know, aside from from the lime side, what have you considered to be the major breakthroughs in, in maybe techniques or technologies for eco-building? And, you know, have they been giant step leaps forward or have they kind of been, you know, small, incremental, tiny, tiny steps? I think they've been both, really. I mean, looking back on it, we probably had all the tools we needed 15 years ago to be able to build zero-carbon buildings. And a lot of it is relatively low-tech and that side of it hasn't changed very much. Mm. There's probably an increasing awareness now of things like passive house standards and air tightness than there, there was before. But the technology mm. for delivering that hasn't really changed. The sort of things that have made a difference on the technology side, we've seen LED lighting coming in that time, which I think right. is a huge leap forward, although it's often overlooked. Things using 4-watt bulbs instead of 100-watt bulbs is is pretty impressive. 
And we've seen things like PVs and battery storage advance and, and come down in cost as well. The cost of PVs is constantly dropping and we can now do whole PV and battery storage installations for less than we used to be able to just do the PVs alone. And then there have been probably subtle incremental increases in things like ventilation systems, Mm. ground source and air source and that sort of thing. But the basic principle that we follow is, is fabric first, getting the fabric of the building right. And none of that has really changed over the last 15 years. Our knowledge of it has changed and our ability to do it has improved. But, um, but the basic principles are still the same as they were 15 years ago. Let's talk about Sassy Property now and focus on, on, on you guys as a company. You've been going since 2017. Can you just tell the listeners a, a little bit about the, the type of developments which you build and, and, and the location where you're, where you're focused geography-wise? Yes. Well, having started in 2017, we are still an early-stage company. There are three directors, and we're very fortunate that we all share an interest in doing quality, low-carbon, low-energy buildings. And really, the thing that we bring to the party is being able to access our pension funds, our SAS pensions, SAS stands for a small self-administered scheme, and that's why we're called SASI Property. We're really doing our first new build development at the moment, which is just outside Abingdon in a little village called Southmore. Is that the Springfield Meadows? Springfield Meadows, yes. So although we've been working on it for two years now, over two years, it took over a year just to acquire the site and then another six months to sort out the pre-commencement planning conditions. So construction only started in April this year. That's our first project. Well, we set our aspirations and targets pretty high. We want mm. to be the greenest private housing development in the UK. So we said we wanted all the houses to have a zero carbon footprint. Right. Okay. Also to be net zero energy in use. What does a zero carbon footprint mean? It means that every material that goes into a, a building has mm. a, a carbon impact. If it's processed, transported, all of those sort of things, mined, quarried, whatever, all of those things right. are responsible for CO2 emissions. If it's a, a plant-based material, whether that's timber or hemp or something like that, as well as having emissions in the processing and transport, it's also got what's called carbon sequestration. That means it's got carbon locked into it by photosynthesis when the plant grew. So whether it's a tree or a hemp plant, all of the rings convert carbon dioxide from the atmosphere into cellulose. And there's a, a really useful natural multiplier that it takes right. 1.8 kilos of carbon dioxide to make mm. one kilo of cellulose. So every kilo of cellulose that we can incorporate into a building is, yeah. is locking up 1.8 kilos of CO2. And if you've got enough carbon dioxide uh, or enough cellulose locked up in these materials, that can go to offset all the, the emissions from the high energy materials like the glass, the concrete, the steel, that sort of thing. So 
it came as a surprise to me when, when we actually did all the maths. This was going back 15 years as well, looking at carbon footprinting and things. But um came as a surprise to me to realise that you had some materials that were carbon negative, which could be used to oppos- offset the carbon positive materials. And therefore, it is actually possible to, to create a building that has a zero carbon footprint or even a negative carbon footprint. So in very simple terms, the more bio-based materials we can use in construction, the lower we can mm. get our carbon footprinting. The average carbon footprint of a new house is somewhere between 50 and 60 tonnes of CO2. So that means you've got somewhere between 50 and 60 tonnes of CO2 emitted for every new house that's built. Every new house, right. And it could be zero. So there's a massive difference so that's called embodied carbon. Um, okay. Now, at the moment, the industry is only just beginning to focus on embodied carbon. When people talk about zero carbon, generally what they're talking about is zero carbon in use. So they're not, they're not creating emissions from the use of the building. So this is emissions. Once the house has been built, but I don't know, the toasters we use, the heating systems we use, et cetera, et cetera, that's yes. what most yeah. people are talking mm. about. So that's right. On this project, we decided that we wanted a zero carbon footprint and we wanted to be zero energy, zero carbon in use as well. So, so having, having got these houses to have a zero carbon footprint, they're also built to the passive house standard so that they have very little heating requirements. And then they've got enough PVs on the roof that they generate as much energy each year as they use. So I think in the past, we've seen people have zero carbon in use and we've seen some projects that are zero embodied carbon but as far as we know this is the first one that's got both of those things in terms of for a sassy house these are the construction in a factory is is that correct that's right yes yeah and are those are those are those factories are they based in germany or no it's based in oxfordshire oh right okay so this is where where i have my other hat uh, as a director of greencore construction greencore operates the factory, makes the, the panels in the factory, and then we build the houses on site. So how, how long does it take to build or cut the house in, in the factory? It depends on how big they are. So the, the three-bedroom house? Yeah, so a three-bedroom house, we could probably make that in about a week in the factory. Our factory is part of an aircraft hangar. It's a large open space. It's a relatively manual process. It's not one of these high-tech processes that's all operated by robots and computers. It's a pretty manual process, but one of the great things about it being manual is it's very versatile. We can build any type of house, any size, any shape, and it can be scaled up very quickly without the need for huge investment, which I think is very important. Most companies can't afford to spend millions on a new factory in the hope that um, they'll get the work. So scaling something up without a lot of investment is important. And in terms of the material, you, you were talking about houses being constructed using hemp. Where are materials coming from? Well, the houses, first of all, the structure is timber. So it's a timber frame structure, and that timber frame is built into the panels. That timber comes from the Baltic region of Europe. The UK has been importing pine from the Baltic since the 13th century because 
the climate there is very good for growing slow, strong timber. It's not so good in the UK. Although I do think going forward, we can and should be using a lot more indigenous UK timber, but that's not where things are at the moment. And then the mm-hmm. we use comes from um, the sort of uh, Yorkshire, Lincolnshire border. Right. Yeah work with a uh, hemp grower and producer up in, in that region. And then once the parts are on site, how, how, how long would it take to assemble, complete and hand over to a... Well, we get the superstructure up very quickly because it's pre-manufactured in a factory. So um, it comes to site as a series of panels on the back of a, fa- on the back of a lorry mm-hmm. and we can assemble the superstructure in... Uh, well, typically roof on and weather tight in less than two weeks. But then we start on things like the plumbing, electrics, plastering, decorating, which takes another, say, three months after that to, to actually get the whole house finished off. So we're generally working on about a, a four to five month turnaround for our houses. And then look, this is a, you know, it's a, it's a fairly small site compared to the, the, the bigger guys. What, what they're building at. In terms of this crossing over onto a larger development, say about 100 units, what would be the implications? Well, first of all, trying to find larger sites. Most land suitable for building is controlled either by ownership or options by the big house builders. So it's quite difficult to find those sites. We're, we're working on finding sites and working with landowners at the moment but it's more difficult than one might think because most land is is controlled by the big boys and then of course it involves quite a lot of money land particularly in Oxfordshire is very expensive so those are the challenges actually the building is the easy part generally. But in terms of the build costs and supply chains would would, would they cross over well into a, a larger site? Yes yes generally our build costs, we think, are pretty similar to to the same to build costs of other people. Even though we're building zero carbon, zero energy houses, and other people are not. So I don't think we're we're not spending additional money to deliver these standards. We're we're making different choices. In some cases, I think we're making smarter choices. Okay. Probably the main difference is that we don't yet benefit from the economies of scale that uh, that the big PLC house builders have. So our prices are and our construction costs are the same as other people operating in the same sort of scale or maybe even at larger scale, but, right. but they're not at the point of the PLC house builders who are building thousands and thousands of houses a year. So there's a there's a journey to go on in terms of those economies of scale, I think. The Housing Secretary recently announced the new Future Home Standard, which has got the goal of reducing carbon dioxide emissions by 80% in 2025. Is just, I'm first of all just checking the my facts. Is, 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 does that sound correct to you? It, it does. That's, that's the operational energy, remember. So that's pretty well the target that we all thought we were working to in 2016. Well, that's when the home is operating rather than... Yeah. That, right, okay. That doesn't, as far as I'm aware at the moment, that doesn't include the embodied carbon emissions. Or, although right. by the time the standard comes out, maybe that will have been incorporated. 
So if you remember back in 2006, the government at mm. the time had a 10-year plan to deliver zero carbon housing by 2016. And that was going to be through the Code for Sustainable Homes. And we're all working through the different levels until we were all supposed to be achieving Code Level 6, zero carbon by 2016. That got cancelled, I think it was in 2014 or 2015 by, by you know, the government at the time, basically mm-hmm. under pressure from the, the big house builders. Um, right. And standards have been relaxed. If we, if we delivered that, we'd all be having houses that were zero emissions in use by now. But we're now mm. having to come up with another plan, which is talking about either 2022, if it's the Labour government's target, or 2025, as you say, the future homes plan. But it's a journey that we've got to go on. But I think we've got to go much further than that because the impact of the construction, the embodied carbon, so Mm. much more significant than the emissions. So we've got to be reducing the carbon footprint as well as eliminating the emissions in use. What is the solution or what are the the steps that that we should take to get all house builders to really build in an environmentally responsible way? Well, I think it's there are a few things, but probably the main one is it has to be legislated for. It's unlikely that we'll see commercial organisations doing it voluntarily. Is that through education, though, or is that through just the I don't know, you know, a chase of profits or whatever it might be. At the moment, there are a number of factors, I think. So most lay people don't really understand all the the subtleties of embodied carbon, carbon footprinting, carbon emissions. The market for housing is not the same as other markets. It doesn't have normal supply and demand balances that you see in other markets. Supply is generally restricted through a combination of planning processes and uh, builders not wanting to build things faster than they can sell them. So at the moment, we have uh, cycles of, of demand and economic upturns and downturns. But in general, there's a shortage of housing and people choose housing based on where it is and how much it costs rather than its energy performance and its carbon printing. And then there's also the, the fact that energy performance certificates don't necessarily reflect the real performance of the house. Probably most people think if they buy a, an A-rated house, it's better than a B or C-rated house. That might not be the case. I think there's a bit of a scandal waiting to come out there that uh, energy efficiency and EPCs are not representative of the real performance of the house. They're a sort of desktop study rather mm. than a, a test of that house itself. All of those things make it very difficult for... You haven't got a public crying out for energy-efficient housing. And then when you buy a house, there's the unregulated and regulated energy. So the people who build it can only really deal with the regulated part, things like the heating and hot water and lighting. They don't really have much control over the way people use it themselves. And when we get our energy bills, we don't actually know how much of that is for heating and how much is hot water and how much is 
for watching the television and using the washing machine and that sort of thing. So it makes it very difficult for for the buying public to understand Mm. and demand the highest standards. So that's why I think it's got to come from legislation. The only thing that is really possible to tell, if we had houses that ran for nothing, then zero is is an easy figure to measure, isn't it? It either doesn't cost you anything or it does cost you something. You know, we're a little way away from that at the moment, but it, it could come in the future. But just to finish with a, a, a couple of couple of last questions, um, what do you think the industry will look like in 15 years' time? Well, I hope it will look very different. My worry is it will look very similar. If we think what it looked like 15 years ago, it hasn't moved a great distance in that last 15 years, really. Um, pioneers like ourselves have made an impact, but it's a small impact. We, we, need, we need strong legislation and mm. strong enforcement, I think. One of the simplest things to do would be to link sustainability to the planning system. Right. You, only, you only get planning permission if you're building a zero carbon, zero energy house. But at the moment, there's no link in planning terms between sustainability and energy efficiency and the planning process, really. The government explicitly tried to remove those links a few years ago. Just finally, taking you back to when you started in the construction industry, if you could go back in, in, in time and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, what a difficult question. I think probably to be more focused and to really not be distracted by all the things around the edges, something that we've only started to do over the last few years, really. As, as a builder, it's tempting to, to take on projects because we can build anything and we like building a range of things, right. but, but actually we make the biggest impact by being very, very focused. And, uh, and it's taken me probably the best part of 30 years to learn how to say no. And we now say no to a lot more things than we say yes to. Put on the spot like that. That's that's the one that springs to mind. Okay, yeah, I, did, I, did, <laughs> I did mean to put you on the spot, but I think it was a very good. I think it was a very good answer, and I, I think it's when the person's really put on the spot. It's, it's that thing that comes to mind first of all that is probably the most important thing. Ian, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure to speak with you, and um, I'm actually taken quite a lot away from that that episode and thank you very much it's a pleasure discover how to build your uk house builder business and attract the top 15 percent of leadership talent using one-to-many platforms automation and 24 7 365 proven digital strategies before your competition be sure to subscribe for more podcasts from the good to great series featuring leading voices from the UK house building industry, from small to medium businesses to leading PLCs. Don't forget to rate and review so that we can continue to bring you the best content possible. For more information, call 0203 800 1080 or check out www.hc-group.co.uk and book a client or candidate blueprint strategy session.